School of Things begins with um, the two central characters, the narrator of the story, McCandless, who is a medical student with uh, the illegitimate son of a, of a farmer, um, an orphan because his mother has died, but he's uh, been left enough money to become a medical student at Glasgow University, um, where his uh, his only friend becomes a another uh, medical practitioner called Godwin Baxter, who's the the son of a famous surgeon, mm. and who is. Uh, um, physically grotesque in that he's uh, he has the proportions of a of a probably of a, a two year old boy but uh, is actually about seven feet high tall and proportionately broad mm. and uh, has a an intolerably voice, but he's uh, definitely a surgical genius. And um, but uh, though they were initially friends, for reasons I won't go into, there there's a quarrel between them. Um, the hero, uh, McCandless, uh, um, has, has insulted Godwin Baxter and has been refused his friendship. Mm. And with this version, this comes. Then came the loneliest months I have known. Baxter no longer came to the university. <coughs> The bench was removed from his old workspace, which became a cupboard again. I strolled around Park Circus at least once a fortnight, but saw nobody or enter or leave his front door, and I lacked courage to climb the steps and knock. Yet clean, unshuttered windows showed the house was occupied, and I should have realised that when not with, not with a stranger, who preferred to use the servant's entrance through the back garden. My longing for his company was not mercenary, for I no longer thought him a scientific miracle worker. My studies showed we could not even graft the forepart of a worm or a caterpillar to the hind part of another. This was twenty years before Jansky identified the main blood groups, so we could not even transfuse blood. I classified my experience of the rabbits as a hallucination based on a natural coincidence and provoked by something hypnotic in Baxter's voice. Yet at weekends, I followed old paths through woodlands and moorlands because they recalled our conversations when we walked walked them together. And of course, I was hoping to meet him again. One cold, bright Saturday, when winter was becoming spring, I walked up Sucky Hall Street and heard what at first seemed an iron-shod carriage wheel scraping a curbstone. A moment later I recognised a familiar voice saying, 
Bulldog McCandless. How is my bulldog this morning, weather? A lot better for hearing the sound of your ugly voice, Baxter, said I. Have you never thought of getting a new larynx? The vocal cords of a sheep would twang more melodiously than yours. He walked beside me at the usual stumping trudge, which carried him as fast as my own swift stride. A walking stick was clenched under his arm like an officer's baton. He wore a curly-brimmed topper on the back of his head. His chin was held high, and an exuberant smile showed he now cared nothing for the glances of other pedestrians. With a pang of envy, I said, You look happy, Baxter. Yes, McCandless, I now enjoy more flattering company than you ever provided. A fine, fine woman, McCandless, who owns her life to these fingers of mine, these skilly, skilly fingers. He wagged them in the air before him as if playing a keyboard. I was jealous. I said, What did you cure her of? Death. You mean that you saved her from death? Partly, yes, but the greatest part is a skillfully manipulated resurrection. You don't make sense, Baxter. Then come and meet her. I would welcome a second opinion. Physically, she is perfect, but her mind is still forming. Yes, her mind has wonderful discoveries to make. She knows only what she learned in the last weeks but you will find her more interesting than Mopsy and Flopsy put together. So your patient is amnesiac? That is what I tell people. But don't you believe me? Judge for yourself. And the only other words he said before we reached Park Circus were that his patient was called Belle, short for Bella, and lived in a great clutter because he wanted her to enjoy seeing, hearing, and handling as many things as possible. As Baxter unlocked his front door, I thought I heard a piano playing the bonny banks of Loch Lomond so loud and fast that the tune was wildly cheerful. He led me into a drawing room where I saw the music being made by a woman seated at a pianola. Her back was toward us. Curly black hair hair hid her body to the waist. Her legs pumped the treadles, turning the cylinder with the vigour that showed she enjoyed the exercise as much as the music. She flapped her arms sideways like a seagull's wings, regardless of the beat. She was so engrossed she did not notice us. I had time to study the room. It had tall windows overlooking the circus, a bright fire under a marble mantelpiece. The big dogs lay most somnolent on a hearthrug, their chins cushioned on each other's flanks. The three cats sat as far apart as possible on the backs of the highest chairs, each pretending not to see the rest, but all twitching if one of them moved. Through an open double door I saw a room overlooking the back garden, and by the fire in this room a placid elderly lady sat knitting, a small boy playing with bricks at her feet. Two rabbits sipped milk from a saucer. Baxter murmured, that the lady was his housekeeper, the boy her grandson. One rabbit was pure black, the other pure white, but I decided to draw no conclusions from that. What made the place strange was a multitude of things on the carpets, tables, sideboards and seats, a tripod upholding a telescope, 
a lantern slide projector aimed at a standing screen, celestial and terrestrial globes, each a yard in diameter, a half-put-together jigsaw puzzle showing the British islands, a fully furnished doll's house with the front open exposing everybody from a thin maid servant in the attic bedroom to a fat cook rolling pastries in the basement kitchen, a toy farm with hundreds of accurately carved and painted animals, a brilliant forelock of real stuffed hummingbirds wired to a silver stand shaped like a bush with leaves and fruit of, of, of leaves and fruit of coloured glass, a xylophone, harp, kettle drums, an erect human skeleton, and glass jars holding pickled limbs and bodily organs. These specimens probably came from old Sir Collins' collection, but their brown morbidity was contradicted by surrounding vases of daffodils, pots of hyacinths and a great crystal bowl in which tiny jewel-like tropical fish darted and large golden ones glided. Many books were propped open at vivid illustrations. I noticed a Madonna and Child, Burns stooping to a field mouse, the fighting Temeraire towed to her last birth, and kobolds discovering the skeleton of Ichthyosaurus in a cavern under the Hartz Mountains. The music stopped. The woman stood and faced us, stepping unsteadily forward, then pausing as if to keep balance. Her tall, beautiful, full-bodied figure seemed between twenty and thirty years. Her facial expression looked far, far less. She gazed with the wide-open eyes and mouth, which suggest alarm in an adult, but in her suggested pure alert delight with an expectation of more. She wore a black velvet gown with narrow lace collar and cuffs. She spoke carefully with a North of England accent, and each syllable was as sweet and distinct as if piped on a flute. Hello, Godwin. Hello, new man. Then she flung both arms out toward me, and kept them there. Give only one hand to new men, Belle, said Baxter kindly. She dropped her left hand to her side without otherwise moving or altering her bright expectant smile. Nobody had looked at me like that before. I grew confused as the offered hand was too high for me to shake in the conventional way. I surprised myself by stepping forward, rising on tiptoe, taking Belle's fingers in mind and kissing them. She gasped and for a moment and a moment later slowly withdrew her hand and looked at it, rubbing the fingers gently with her thumb as if testing something my lips had left there. She also cast several astonished but happy little glances at my fascinated face while Baxter beamed proudly on both of us like a clergyman introducing two children at a Sunday school picnic. He said, This is Mr. McCandless, Belle. Hello, Mr. Candle, she said. New wee man with carrot tea red hair, interested face, blue necktie, crump plaid coat, waistcoat, Trousers made of brown cord, dew, ray. 
Corduroy, my dear, said Baxter, smiling as joyfully on her as she on me. Corduroy, a ribbed fabric woven from cotton, Mr. McCandle. McCandle less, dear Belle. But dear Belle has no candle, so Belle is candle-less too, Godwin. Please be Belle's new candle, you new wee candle-maker. You reason beautifully, Belle, said Baxter, but have still to learn that most names are not reasonable. Oh, Mrs. Dinwiddie, take Belle and your grandson down to the kitchen and give them lemonade and a doughnut sprinkled with sugar. McCandless and I will be in the study. As we climbed the stair, Baxter said eagerly, So what do you think of our bell? Oh, a bad case of brain damage, Baxter. Only idiots and infants talk like that, are capable of such radiant happiness, such flank, frank glee and friendship and meeting someone new. It is dreadful to see these things in a lovely young woman. She only looked thoughtful once, when your housekeeper led her away from me, from us, I mean to say. Have you noticed that? But it is a sign of maturity. You are wrong about the brain damage. Her mental powers are growing at enormous speed. Six months ago, she had the brain of a baby. What reduced her to that state? Oh, nothing reduced her to it. She has risen from it. It was a perfectly healthy little brain. His voice must have had hypnotic qualities, for I suddenly knew what he meant and believed him. I stood still and clutched the banister, feeling sick. I heard my voice stammer a question about where he got the other bits. That is what I want to tell you, McCandless, he cried, putting an arm round my shoulder and lifting me easily up the stairs with him. You're the only one in the world I can talk to about this. As, I, as, the feet, as my feet left the carpet, I thought I was in the grip of a monster and started kicking. I also tried to yell, but he put a hand over my mouth, carried me to a bathroom, held my head under a cold shower, carried me to his study, placed me on a sofa and gave me a towel. I grew calmer while using it, but nearly panicked again when he handed me a tumbler of grey slime. He said it was concocted from fruit and vegetables, that it strengthened the nerves, muscles and blood without overstimulating them, that he drank nothing else. I refused it, so he hunted in cupboards under a lot of glass-fronted bookcases until he found a decanter of port nobody had tasted since his father died. As I sipped the dark ruby syrup, I suddenly felt that Baxter, his household, Miss Bell, yes, and me in Glasgow, and rural Galloway, and all Scotland were equally unlikely and absurd. I started laughing. Mistaking my hysteria for a return to common sense, he gave a sigh of relief that sounded like a steam whistle in the room next door. I winced. He produced cotton wool from a drawer. I plugged my ears with it. He told me the following story. The next chapter, five, is called Making Bella Baxter. Jordy Geddes works for the Glasgow Humane Society, who give him a rent-free house on Glasgow Green. 
His job is to fish human bodies out of the Clyde and save their lives if possible. When not possible, he puts them in a small morgue attached to his dwelling, where a police surgeon performs autopsies. If this official is not available, they send for me. Most of the bodies are suicides, of course, and if no one claims them, they are transferred to dissecting rooms in the laboratories. I have arranged such transfers. I was called to examine the body you know as Bella soon after a quarrel a year ago. Geddes saw a young woman climb onto the parapet of the suspension bridge near his home. She did not jump feet first like most suicides. She dived clean under like a swimmer, but expelling the air from her lungs, not drawing it in, for she did not return to the surface alive. On recovering the body, Geddes found she had tied the strap of a reticule filled with stones to her wrist. An unusually deliberate suicide then, and committed by someone who wished to be forgotten. The pockets of her discreetly fashionable garments were empty, with neat holes cut in the lining and lingerie, where women of the wealthier class had their names or initials stitched. Rigour had not set in. The body had hardly cooled before I arrived. I found she was pregnant, with pressure grooves round the finger where wedding and engagement rings had been removed. What does that suggest to you, Mr. McCandless? Either she was carrying the child of her husband she hated, or the child of her lover she preferred to her husband, a lover who abandoned her. I thought so too. I cleared her lungs of water, her womb of the fetus, and by a subtle use of electrical stimulus could have brought her back to self-conscious life. I dared not. You will know if you see Bella asleep. Bella's face in repose is that of the ardent, wise, sorrowful woman who lay before me on the mortuary slab. I knew nothing about the life she had abandoned except that she hated it, so much that she had chosen not to be and forever. What would you feel on being dragged from a carefully chosen blank eternity and forced to be in one of our thick-walled, understaffed, poorly-equipped madhouses, reformatories or jails. For in this Christian nation, suicide is treated as lunacy or crime. So I kept the body alive at a purely cellular level. It was advertised. Nobody claimed it. I brought it here to my father's laboratory. My childhood's hopes and boyhood dreams my education and adult researches had prepared me for this monumental moment. Every year, hundreds of young women drown themselves because of the poverty and prejudice of our damnably unfair society. And nature, too, can be ungenerous. You know how often it produces births we call unnatural because they cannot live without artificial help or cannot live at all. Anacephalids, bicephalids, Cyclops, and some so unique, science does not name them. Good doctoring ensures the mothers never see these. Some malformations are less grotesque, but equally dreadful. Babies without dry distive tracts must starve to death as soon as the umbilical cord is cut, if a kind hand does not first smother them. No doctor dare do such thing, or order a nurse to do it. But the thing gets done, and in modern Glasgow, second city of Britain for size, 
and foremost for infant mortality. Few parents can afford a coffin, a funeral and a grave for every dead wee body they own. Even Catholics can sign their unchristened to limbo. In the workshop of the world, limbo is usually the medical profession. For years I have been planning to take a discarded body and discarded brain from a social middle heap and unite them in a new life. And it, I did so, hence Bella. Like most who listen closely to a tale told in a calm manner, I too had grown calm, which helped me think sensibly again. Bravo, Baxter, I cried, raising my glass as if toasting him. How do you explain her dialect? Is there Yorkshire blood in her veins, or do the parents of her brain come from northern England? Only one explanation is possible, said Black Baxter broodingly. The earliest habits we learn, and speech is one of them, must become instinct through the nerves and muscles of the whole body. We know instinct is not wholly seated in the brain, since a headless chicken can run for yards before it drops. The muscles of Bella's throat, tongue and lips still move as they did in the first 25 years of her existence, which I think was nearer Manchester than Leeds. But all the words she uses have been learned from Moore or me or from the elderly Scotswoman who run my household or from children who play with her here. How do you explain Bell's presence to them, Baxter? Or are you such a domestic tyrant that your underlings dare not ask for explanations? Baxter hesitated, then muttered that his servants were all former nurses, trained by Sir Colin, and not surprised by the presence of strange people recovering from intricate operations. But how do you explain her to society, Baxter? Are your neighbours in the circus, the parents of those who play with her, the policemen on the beat, are they told she is a surgical fabrication? How will you account for her on the next government census? They are told she is Bella Baxter, a distant niece whose parents died in a South American railway accident, a disaster which has sustained a concussion causing total amnesia. I have dressed her in mourning to support this story. It is a good one. Sir Colin had a cousin he quarrelled with many years ago who went out to the Argentine before the potato famine and was never heard of again. He could easily have married the daughter of an English émigré in a racial hodgepodge like the Argentine. And luckily Bella's complexion, though different before I arrested her at cellular decay, is now as sallow as my own, which can pass as a family trait. This is the story Bella will be told when she, when, she, when she learns that most people have parents and wants a couple of them for herself. An extinct, respectable couple will be better than none. It would cast a shadow upon her life to learn she is a surgical fabrication. Only you and I know the truth, and I doubt if you believe it. Frankly, Baxter, the story of the railway accident is more convincing. <laughs> Believe what you like, McCandless, but please go easy on the port. I refused to go easy on the port. I deliberately filled the glass a second time while saying with equal deliberation, So you think Miss Baxter bra Baxter's brain 
will one day be as adult as her body? Yes, and quickly. Judging by her speech, how old would you say she is? She blithered like a five-year-old. I judge her mental age by the age of children she can play with. Robbie Murdoch, my housekeeper's grandchild, is not quite two. They called around the floor very happily till five weeks ago. Then she began to find him boring and developed a passionate admiration for a niece of my cook. The niece is a bright six-year-old who, after Bella's novelty wore off, finds her very boring. I think Bella's mental age is nearly four, and if I am right, then her body has stimulated the growth of her brain at a wonderful rate. This will cause problems. You will not notice it. You did not notice it, McCandless, but you attracted Bella. You are the first adult male she has met apart from me, and I saw her sense it through the fingertips. Her response showed that her body was recalling carnal sensations from an earlier life, and that the sensations excited her brain into new thoughts and new world forms. She asked you to be her candle and candle maker. A body construction can be put on that. Havers, I cried appalled. How dare you talk of your lovely niece in that monstrous way? Had you played with other bairns when you were young, you would know such talk, a commonplace childhood prattle. Come a riddle, come a riddle, come a rote tote tote, a wee wee man and a wee wee boat. Willie Winky runs through the toon in his night, night goon. I had a little husband no bigger than my thumb. Little Jack Horner stuck in a, his in a plum. But how will you educate Miss Baxter if she outgrows this pleasant state? Not by sending her to school, he said firmly. I will not let people treat her as an oddity. I will shortly take her on a carefully planned journey around the world, staying longest in the places she enjoys. In this way, she will see and learn many things by talking to people who will not find her much queerer than most British travellers, and a charmingly natural when, when compared with her gross companion. It will also let me remove her quickly from attachments which look like becoming romantic in an unhygienic way. And of course, Baxter, I told him recklessly, she will be wholly at your mercy with no public opinion to protect her, not even through the frail agency of your domestic servants. When we last met, Baxter, you boasted in the heat of a quarrel. You were devising a secret method of getting a woman all to yourself, and now I know what your secret is. Abduction. You think you are about to possess what men have hopelessly yearned for, Throughout the ages, the fall of an innocent, trusting, dependent child inside the odd, opulent body of a radiantly lovely woman. I will not allow it, Baxter. You are the rich heir of a mighty nobleman. I am the bastard bairn of a poor peasant. But between the wretched of the earth there is a stronger bond than the rich realize. Whether Bella Baxter be your orphan niece or twice orphaned fabrication, I am more truly akin to her than you can ever be, and will preserve her honour by the last drop of blood in my veins, as sure as there is a God in heaven, Baxter, a God of eternal pity and vengeance, before whom the mightiest emperor on earth is feebler than a falling sparrow. Baxter replied by carrying the decanter back to the cupboard where he found and found it and locking the door. 
I cooled down while he did this, remembering I'd stopped believing in God, heaven, eternal pity, etc., after reading The Origin of Species. I still see, it still seemed weird to recall that after unexpectedly meeting my only friend, future wife, and the first decanter of port, I raved in the language of novels I knew to be trash and only read to relax my brain before sleeping. <laughs>